Grace, mercy, and peace be yours, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Christmas Eve. Uh, Merry Christmas once again to everyone. Welcome, welcome. Um, I think it's probably an understatement uh, for me to say that we live in a world in which determining what exactly is true versus false is a little bit difficult. Okay, so so I think I think increasingly we live in a world where we are. We are inundated with streams of information, in fact, arguably more information than, than anyone before us has encountered, right? Um, but a lot is not necessarily always good. Um, and if you're anything like me, maybe it feels as though within your world, within the new streams that you have, um, that you're in some sense almost drinking from a fire hose, right? And so how do we determine the things that we're going to focus on the things that we will ingest, the things that we will let into our lives, into uh, um, our daily living and into the lives of our kids, right? Uh, I think that's become harder than it ever has been. Now, determining between truth and false or whatever lies in between, that's a skill and that takes great wisdom, doesn't it? I've got a story for you here tonight. It's about a Christmas ship. This takes place on the Great Lakes, actually Lake Michigan, okay? Uh, this Christmas ship um, was called the Roos Simmons. So it was a three-masted schooner, okay? So if some of you are, are nautical, if, you're, if you, maybe you were in the Navy, so it was a three-masted schooner um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So the Roos Simmons, um, became affectionately known as the Christmas ship on Lake Michigan. So some of you, if you grew up in uh, the Midwest, maybe Chicago, those areas, this story might start to ring a bell just a little bit, right? Uh, but this schooner, the Ruth Simmons, uh, this is what it looked like, and it landed kind of at an interesting time within our world and within our history. So um, the transition to steam-powered ships had had was starting to kind of bulldoze over traditional three-masted schooners and, and um, wind-driven ships. And so the Roos Simmons, in, in some part, was a little bit of a throwback to the generation that had come before it, right? Uh, the world had um, industrialized. The world, in some sense, was moving on. And these schooners, increasingly, uh, had become redundant, slow, difficult to man. But the Ruth Simmons um, found kind of second life in delivering Christmas trees to all the little boys and girls in Chicago, okay? That was what it did. So it was helmed uh, by this man right here in the middle. Uh, these are a couple of his brothers as well. Um, but what they found was, and you can see the Christmas trees behind them, that there was, there was um, great joy in being able to go up into the UP, so very northern part of Michigan, harvest pine trees, fill up the Ruth Simmons, um, sail south to the Port of Chicago, uh, park their ship underneath the, the bridge canal there, and they would sell all of their Christmas trees to Chicagoans and to Midwesterners. Okay? Now, that had gone pretty well. In fact, it had gone well enough that the ship had earned the nickname, the Christmas ship, uh, and its captain um, affectionately went by uh, Captain Santa, of course, right? So um, they did wonderful up until 1912. It was kind of late November, 
They set out with their, their entire ship filled with Christmas trees. Uh, their destination was Chicago. But on that given day, it became really, really difficult on Lake Michigan. So if some of you know the Great Lakes, um, huge storms can kind of whip up, uh, especially when you're headed into winter. And that's exactly what happened for the Roos Simmons. Um, incredible winds tore into that ship as it tried to sail south to Chicago. Uh, by estimates, there were some wind gusts that were 60 to 70 miles per hour while they were out on uh, Lake Michigan. Now remember, this is a, a three-masted schooner. This is not a steamship, right? And so these men, with their ship filled with Christmas trees, were doing their absolute best in order to get to Chicago to deliver those Christmas trees to, uh, to anyone that wanted one in the Midwest, right? They were sailing south, but the winds got difficult, more and more difficult. In fact, at some point, uh, they, they sent out a mayday. Right? Somebody said that they saw a, a bottle wash up on the shore of Wisconsin off of Lake Michigan um, that had words in it that said, this is our last, we're not going to make it. Okay? Days went by. Weeks went by. Family members of the sailors that were on the Ruth Simmons had, had obviously become concerned. They said, where are they? There's no way it should take this long for them to come south. Days turned into weeks. All of a sudden, there were reports of Christmas trees washing up on shore. Right? Not the greatest of news. Others said that when they went out on Lake Michigan afterwards, um, that there was a faint smell of evergreen and pine trees occasionally. Right? The story of the Ruth Simmons delivering Christmas trees to Chicago, it's true. But there's some parts of that story which is pretty common in the Midwest. In fact, um, it's such a popular story that they made a musical out of it, that people have written books about it, that there were paintings, right, painted about this story. And on some level, the story of the Christmas tree ship has been what we call kind of mythologized. It's become a little bit bigger than reality. When you think you can smell pine trees when you're out on Lake Michigan, the story may have grown a little bit, right? That very thing is true of the Ruth Simmons. Right? Um, and that, that um, hard reality um, um, kind of showed itself in 1972 because guess what they found in 1972? The wreckage of the Ruth Simmons, about 10 miles off the coast of Two Rivers, Wisconsin. Okay? And so uh, they found this wreckage and sure enough, what everyone knew had happened, um, it had sunk. But that's where some of, I think, the story starts to melt away to the reality of what they actually found when scuba divers went down there, starting with that Christmas tree right there. Do you think that Christmas tree was standing there in 1972 or whenever they took this picture? It was not, right? Somebody placed it there, uh, um, added to the story, took a picture of it, now you can find it on the internet, right? Okay? So, the Ruth Simmons in the story has reality and truth to it, but it starts to take on a life of its own, right? Discovering the wreckage kind of bore the truth 
um, and, and stripped it clean of some of those more romantic stories. Um, the captain of the Ruth Simmons, um, someone described him as a two-fisted capitalist. Okay? So he was selling Christmas trees to Chicagoans, and he was doing so by cutting out the middleman so he could sell his Christmas trees for less than a dollar off of the port outside of Chicago, thereby undercutting all the other Christmas tree dealers in Chicago, right? So money was at the heart of the Ruth Simmons packing itself with Christmas trees. Second upon that, the Ruth Simmons was not this romantic three-masted schooner. The reason that this captain was sailing the schooner was because it was the cheapest boat that he could find, right? In fact, schooners at this point in history, uh, many of them had been stripped of their masts, and then they had been uh, strung together with ropes and were simply used as like tugboats behind steam engines. There was nothing romantic about these three-masted schooners any longer. In fact, the world had moved on, right? But this captain decided, oh, I can get a cheap ship and I can make a quick buck in Chicago. 1912, that's exactly what he intended to do. There was a huge storm that came in. Should he have gone out? The answer is no. In fact, most of the other ships that were also trying to sail to Chicago on that day said, we are not going out because we'll probably die. This captain said, no, nah, I'm going to go. I'm going to risk it. Again, you want to know why? because he'd be able to sell every last Christmas tree and make another buck, right? Added to that, uh, the Ruth Simmons, about two years prior, had to be towed into port um, because it was leaking water so badly, right? Ships, especially those ships, every single year had to be reclocked so that they would actually stay afloat. This captain, to save a buck, didn't do it. In fact, there are reports that as he left the port in northern Michigan, um, that there was only a foot of deck above the water line. That's how low in the water the Roos Simmons was sitting as it left, right? This is not a boat you want to get on. In fact, some of his own sailors didn't get on. They refused to sail with him. They actually went down to Chicago via train. That's how come we know some of these accounts and how low it was. The Roos Simmons should never have held anything more than about 5,000 Christmas trees. The captain on that day, um, under those circumstances, had loaded it up with 5,500 Christmas trees. Okay? Reports and, uh, from those sailors that didn't get on the boat said that he actually had Christmas trees not only packed all the way in the entire cargo hole under, underneath, but he had Christmas trees stacked like cordwood eight feet high on the deck. Okay? This was the reality of the Ruth Simmons as it tried to sail south um, to Chicago to sell its Christmas trees, right? Um, the faint smell of evergreen when you're out on the Lake Michigan, it adds to the story, but it's not reality. The, the, the bottle with last words from the captain, no evidence that it ever existed, right? All of these things, um, we, we kind of expound and we, we grow the narrative and the story and mythologize around it. Now, um, it makes for a good story, right? It probably makes for a good play. It makes good for, for kind of telling our family and friends this same story every single year. But um, we are savvy enough to know uh, that, that a lot of these things are kind of blown up and made bigger. 
The reason I think we know that is because we are bombarded with those realities every single day of our life. How much of the things we are hearing, seeing, and ingesting are actually true or real? We have full-time, well-paid PR firms that craft narratives, that craft truth, and and carefully, carefully release it to us in the public for us to ingest, right? We live in an incredibly manicured world with information coming in at every single turn, but I... And maybe I've become too cynical at Christmas time. But if you're anything like me, I fear that almost any story, any, any information that comes our way, we become so cynical that we don't believe any of it or assume most of it is just some ploy or game to get us to buy something else. If you're there, you're not alone. I think you're sitting with a congregation full of people that feel the same way and, in fact, our entire world to some degree. And so the question we get to ask ourselves here tonight on Christmas Eve, as we, as we hear the words of the birth of our Lord and Savior, um, what are we able to take from that? Where is the truth in the midst of that? Has this been blown up, made into a story that's wonderful for the kids, but for us jaded, cynical adults, we kind of just set that stuff aside? I think there is danger for us in allowing or having the truth of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, maybe just like the Ruth Simmons, being drowned in a sea of information, not knowing what is true or what isn't, eventually us just casting it to the side. If you ever feel like that, you're not alone, but I'm also glad that you're here tonight. Because when we recall and we hear the words of our Lord and Savior's birth, um, this is not mythologizing. This is, this is not uh, um, 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 creating something from nothing. But this is God made man making his living and dwelling among us. It's got impact. It's got change. Um, and ultimately, it's true. So let's jump into our text here tonight. I'm going to read for you just the very first verse of our uh, text, actually verse um, 6 here. Yeah. Luke says this, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. We start out with this, because I think maybe a little bit we have to clear away some of the brush before we get to the account of the birth of our Lord and Savior. And I think it starts... Here, which and this, this may sound as 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 kind of just the introduction to the account of Jesus' birth, and maybe some of these words even feel as though let's just kind of skip through that part and get to the angels and get to the shepherds part, right? But Luke, the writer of our gospel text tonight, puts these in here for a very specific reason. In fact, Luke tells us he was the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and he tells us he did a a detailed inspection of the account of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And he didn't do that just for his own intellectual prowess. He tells us he did it for um, believers and for you and I so that we would know the truth of the words that we read on the pages of Scripture. And so Luke starts out our, our... Christmas birth text with these words. And it's specific, right? That an, an issue was 
put out, right, in the entire Roman world. And I think there's a few things that we can take from that. How do we determine truth versus half-truths versus falsehoods? Well, I think the very same way that maybe Luke and the early Christians did, we do as well, right? We would ask of ourselves, um, how pervasive is this reality in this story that we're hearing? In the pages of Scripture and Jesus' birth, there, we have some, some telling answers as to the truth of Jesus' birth. First is, is that it was completely widespread. Christ wasn't born in some cave in the middle of nowhere and then all of a sudden showed up um, three centuries later, lo and behold, but into the heart of the known world population in Israel, right, in a town called Bethlehem. So um, these gospel readings, the, the, the gospel that we read here tonight, Jesus' birth was, was so the whole world could see. There was nothing that was hidden that was happening there, right? And so there is strength in everyone understanding who Jesus was. Broadly known, right? Secondly, though, incredibly detailed. Why would Luke write that for us? Why would he drop, why would he use specific details within the pages of Scripture and even with Jesus' own birth unless they were accurate and they were true? Um, Luke says that's exactly why he put it in. To put it more bluntly, Luke in some sense is saying about the birth of our Lord and Savior and to those who are reading his gospel text and the book of Acts and us here tonight, he was saying to those around him, you can check my sources. It was an early version of community notes. I'm going to tell you how Jesus was born, why he was born, and if you doubt that he was born, and if you want to know information about it, ask around. Because people are still alive who knew him, who saw him, who lived with him, who saw his death and his resurrection. And so Luke, on some, in some sense, is saying, um, if, you, if you wonder about the truth of Jesus' birth, ask around. And you'll hear the very same story. And so how do we determine truth from fiction and these narrative streams that are coming in? Someone once said, it's not hard to remember a story when it's true. And it is. Jesus' birth is life, death, and resurrection. Now, Luke, I think, goes to great lengths um, to, to assure us that the account that we heard, that, we, that he has shared, was true. But that truth and that narrative only matters as far as it actually answers the deeper questions that each and every one of us ask of ourselves. And that's where our text really digs into that. Right? The truth of Jesus' birth ultimately answers the reality of who we are, why we are here, and where we are headed. And it's going to do that in three different ways. You're welcome to follow along with me if you'd like. I've got kind of a, a fill in the blank. So three things that we want to pull from this text. Okay? Start with verse 6 and 7. It says, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Is there anything striking about the account of Jesus' birth to you? I kind of highlighted this. It's remarkably simple. You think of everything that was happening in the birth of Jesus. 
um, the decrees that were happening, angels, shepherds, Mary and Joseph, all of those things. And the actual birth of Jesus was remarkably straightforward and simple. And he was born. I think that simplicity, I pray and think maybe at times, maybe that simplicity is something that we miss a little bit. Does anyone know who these are, these guys are? Yeah, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Okay, so some of you know John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Here they are. Um, This is when they were a little bit younger, um, two members of the Beatles. Um, There's a story that Paul McCartney told recently in an interview about John Lennon, um, about his his, uh, um, it, was, it was one evening when they were kind of coming back from their, their recording at a studio. Now, um, if you notice this picture, they're both very young, um, but if you also notice, and if you know a little bit about John Lennon, he's missing something in this picture, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, normally, right? In fact, maybe one of the most iconic pictures, self-portraits, uh, pieces of art that our world knows is John Lennon with, right, his pair of glasses, which is why it's remarkably fascinating uh, the story that Paul McCartney shared. He said they were, they were, um, they were recording, this is when they were younger, um, and they were coming back from their house, and the next morning, John Lennon took McCartney aside and said, um, did you see those crazy people out late last night? They had returned home about midnight or so. McCartney's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, well, over on, on that street over there, you know, you know the corner right there, that's where I saw them. It was midnight. I just could not believe that they were out. And McCartney's like just dumbfounded. He's like, what are you talking about, John? Like, I didn't see anybody. This doesn't make any sense. And then it started to dawn on Paul McCartney. See, um, in his younger days, John Lennon, any time that there was, uh, to put it bluntly, girls around, guess where his glasses would go? off his face and in his pocket, right? So he would oftentimes take his glasses off because he didn't want the girls to see him with his glasses on. Paul McCartney says the only problem with that was that John Lennon was like almost totally blind, like he could not see anything. So that evening, he had his glasses in his pocket. He had returned home. The next morning, he talks to Paul McCartney. He said, did you see those crazy people that were out on their front porch at midnight? McCartney finally realized what was happening. Lennon couldn't see what was going on. He thought that there were people on their front porch at midnight playing cards. Paul McCartney figured out it wasn't people playing cards and it wasn't people at all. It was a nativity scene in the front yard of those folks. (laughs) So John Lennon uh, could not see well enough that it was actually a nativity scene rather than people playing cards at midnight, right? I think here's the thing for us. I think there are times maybe when the things of this life and the things of this world, maybe even the simplicity of the birth of our Lord and Savior, um, that we miss it. That in some sense, maybe we're even blind to it. And sometimes that's our choice. Maybe sometimes that's the things that we encounter in our world. Um, Pain and suffering and brokenness and the struggles of this life. Maybe it's our own sin and our own choice and our own direction that we want to go. But there is a myriad of things in your lives, in my lives, in your hearts and in my heart that can blind us to the reality of the birth of our Lord and Savior. I think it happens more often than not. But here's the incredible thing about Jesus' birth. Christ's birth, we use the word incarnation, 
was the infinite God, vast beyond our, even our greatest imagination, it was the infinite God making himself personally available to us. That's the beauty of this Christmas story. And so there is simplicity in it. But let us never be, be, be fooled into thinking that Christ's incarnation and what God did for us in that child in that manger was simple. It was remarkable and it was profound and it was for you. Go to our next few verses here. Verse 10 says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Second point that we look at here is that this truly was good news. This wasn't just good news for Mary and Joseph. This wasn't just good news for the immediate family. But this good news is for you and I. And here's why it is. That word, or those words, good news, is the Greek word oiangelion, which means gospel. And so this is good news. It's not good advice. It's not good suggestions. It's not a good story. It is good news. Jesus' birth led to his death on a cross, three days in a tomb, and resurrection. That good news is as true as it was then as true today as it was then. And that good news is what Christmas is about. That the infinite God took on flesh for you and I. That that flesh grew into a man named Jesus of Nazareth. That that flesh willingly outstretched his arms and suffered crucifixion, suffering on our behalf. That that child in the manger was destined for a cross and crucifixion. And if that doesn't sound exactly like good news, let me reassure you, it absolutely is. Because his birth, death, and resurrection mean that you are forgiven, you are loved, and eternal life is yours. That is not simple or simplistic. That is remarkable. And that's exactly what you have in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? So it is good news, always good news, not good advice, but the greatest of news that this Savior was born for you and that your sins are forgiven. Where does that lead us? I think verse 14 gives us a little bit of sense. It says, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The reality of Jesus' birth, the good news that he gave his life on the cross for you, ultimately leads us to this. Peace. Now, some of you who are a little bit like me are already cynically saying, show us, right? Where, where, is, where is the peace? As we see wars around us, as we see famine, as we see brokenness, as we see heartache, as we, we literally can see um, um, war zones in Ukraine and in Israel, we may ask ourselves, you may ask of yourself, where is the peace? When you look into your own family, into your own relationships, and I am not so naive to think that some of your relationships here tonight are strained and are difficult and maybe are even at the verge of pulling apart at the seams. That takes on even greater importance, I think, at Christmas time than any other time, right? And so where is this peace that Jesus speaks of? 
reality of it is, it's not in the world and the culture around us. But it's found solely in Him. The kids got their snow globe this morning. <clears throat> you got to see it, right? I brought another one for you here today. Okay? Now, this is a little bit of a, this is a special snow globe. Okay? You're going to get to look at it. And I think it is the greatest example of our modern culture that I could ever see. Um, let me read you the description for this snow globe. Okay? It says this. Our snowball is its own Zen koan. It is at once fluid and solid, round and rectangular, black and white. Am I really doing this up big? This, I'm sure they use this voice, right? Black and white. It is transparent and opaque, kinetic and static, present yet absent. The more you meditate on this timeless design, the more its simple beauty is revealed. Do you know what's inside this snow globe? Nothing but snow. No, there's nothing in it. It is just snow. You can shake it all day long and there is nothing solid, there is nothing sure, there is no object at its core. And this is probably the greatest illustration we could have of our modern day culture, that this is all it is. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all snow flying around. No meaning, no truth, no depth. It's into that that our Lord and Savior, your Lord and Savior was born. Not meaninglessness, not pointlessness, not nothingness, but born true God, true man, destined to lay his life down for us on the cross. In a world, maybe sadly, full of skepticism, pessimism, or even the feeling as though nothing matters. We have a Savior that does. We have a Savior that not only matters, but that you matter to Him enough that He would be born in a manger in Bethlehem, lay down His life on the cross for you at Calvary, and reassure you that you are loved and you are forgiven. This Christmas, my prayer for you is that you rest in his peace, not the peace that this world pretends to give, right? but in the peace of knowing that your sins are forgiven in Christ. This Christmas, I pray that your Christmas trees and your Christmas is not drowned at the bottom of Lake Michigan, but that you are reminded of and reassured of the reality of Jesus, born for you in Bethlehem, so that your sins would be washed clean. Amen.